You know, we'll see how it goes, right? And it could be the last, isn't that right? No, no, just teasing. I think it will go very well this morning. We are welcome. We want to welcome all of our elementary age children that are with us today. All our preschoolers and nursery are in the where they belong today. We're not crazy, okay? We understand that, right? So they're 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 having a good time and they're learning about the Lord in in their own environment. We're glad to have all of our children, our elementary age kids here today. We wanted to give you an opportunity to worship as a family this morning. And so we said what we would do with this service is this, that we would not make it a, just silly a children's service, but we wanted it to be an adult service where children are involved. And so we are glad that you're here. It gives you an opportunity to come here as a family and to see what you can look forward to at some point after you are out of the fifth grade and you're in here with us uh, in the big room sometime in the future. But we are, we're thrilled to have you here as all of our families. Before we go any further, I thought it would be very appropriate also this morning that we pray for the victims and families of those that were killed in the synagogue in Pittsburgh this weekend. Such a tragic thing that's taking place in our nation, the, 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 the hate and everything that's taking place. We, we understand that we live in a Genesis chapter 3 world. It's a very broken world, and we understand that. But that doesn't mean that we are relinquished from our, our call to pray for those that are hurting and so we want to pray for those families and for those police officers that are recovering this morning before we get into our teaching. So you could, if you for a moment, just bow your heads and let's pray together. Father, Lord, um, you're so well aware of everything that happens in this life, in this world. You're the creator, sustainer of all things. And so, Father, we know that this world is broken due to the introduction of sin that came in the book of Genesis. And so we also realize that you are greater. You are greater than all of those things. And so we pray for those families that are suffering this morning, for those officers that are recovering from, from this shooting. We just ask for you to be the comfort in the lives of those families today and to be the healer in the lives of those officers. And Father, we know that, that you are there in the midst of them and you are there with those families today. So be with them today, Lord. Our hearts and our minds are with them also in our prayers. And we thank you for the opportunity to pray for them. We, we just want to stand in prayer for them today in your name. Amen. Today we continue in our series through the book of James. <clears throat> and it's kind of interesting the way this fell with our kids here today. Because today we're going to talk about worldliness and godliness. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, what a great subject. And so turn to the book of James chapter 4. We are getting close to the end. There's only five chapters, so we're in chapter 4. So we're getting close to the end. But today, worldliness and godliness. A few weeks ago, James introduces this concept to us that simply about faith without works is dead. And he doesn't say, he's not talking to us about faith plus works. And that is that we're saved by our works. But he's talking about a faith that has an outward working of Christ within our lives, that if we love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our neighbor as ourself, and that is the law of love and liberty. And, and so we find that thread of faith without works is dead woven all the way through the rest of the book of James for you and I to understand. Last week we talked about wisdom. And what James said to us is this, if you're going to say that you're wise, then live a wise life. He said, you know, show me your wisdom is exactly what he said. So he said, here's two things about wisdom I want you to understand. There are two types of wisdom, that of one, false wisdom or earthly wisdom. And that is that wisdom that simply lives in the moment of your life, that you're kind of boxed in that moment. So all your decisions are made around that. Because why? Because you are the most important thing in the world. You are the 
the, the sun that everything revolves around. But he said, then there's also heavenly wisdom or true wisdom. True wisdom is based on eternity. That this is more than just about us. This is more than just about the moment in our life, but that God is doing a greater thing within us. So it does leave room in that of true wisdom and heavenly wisdom for suffering and for loss within our life to realize that it is for a greater purpose. And he said that what heavenly wisdom leads to it leads to a harvest of righteousness and peace. Not the imputed righteousness that we get from that of Christ covering our sins, but that of growth. So it brings us again back to that faith without works is dead. It brings us back to this thing about James that we talked about, that James is about, it's about progress, not perfection. It's about progress and not perfection. Understand that. And so we're not, we're not saying to you today that when you leave here, you're going to be absolutely perfect. You're not going to do anything wrong ever again in your life. You're never going to, you know, you're never going to covet from your neighbor and you're never going to tell a lie again. And you're, and you're never going to have a bad thought about someone else. No, no. But this is about progress. This is about moving toward the person that God has designed us to become. So in light of all of that, it's James chapter 4. And verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among us? I think it's a really great topic to talk about with all of our kids here and families here. Because sometimes in a family, you have fights. Isn't that right? Yes? Isn't that true? Yes, absolutely. If you're breathing and blood is throwing, flowing through your body, then if you're in a family, then you're going to have fights and quarrels. So it really brings us down to the ground of where you and I live. Is it not this, he said, that your passions are at war within you? It sort of frames the kind of quarrels and fights he's talking about. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you can obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, he calls us. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so that's very interesting that he says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Because he's talking about, he's talking about this uh, friendship with the world that reveals not just a contempt toward God, but yet it's a hostility toward God. It's that we are angry with him is exactly what he's saying. And, and it's sort of there's this hostility we have up toward God. That, that, you know, in life what I've learned something about this is there's, there's those in life that you can flex toward. You know, flexing is like when you get in someone's face and you kind of bow your chest back kind of thing like that. And, you know, and it is sort of you're, you're positioning yourself in, in, for an argument maybe. And then there's those that you can't do that with kind of thing. And, and I want to say to you, I don't recommend you do that with God. I really don't recommend that you do that with God. Because what this says is this, that when you choose to be a friend of the world, and we're going to frame that for you in just a moment, so don't draw conclusions, that you show hostility toward your Creator. And so he goes on to say this, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So here's the thought. At some point in all of our lives... We find ourselves in a quarrel or we find ourselves in a fight. At some point we do. You say, Mark, you don't understand that it's been probably a year or two years since I've been in any kind of quarrel or any kind of fight that I walk around and I feel like that there is a cloud of the peace of Jesus that hovers over me all the time and I'm just not like that. And can I tell you, you are not being honest with yourself nor us. You're not. So let's just level the ground for a moment and let's ask a question. You've met the person next to you, so it's a, we're a family. Our kids are in here, so it's time to be honest that how many of you maybe in the last, oh, 
I would, let's, I'll just put it this way. In the last 30 days, you found yourself in a quarrel or a fight or an argument. Raise your hand if you've been there. Let me see. Let me see your hands. Good. Terrific. Okay. Good. Put your hands down. Now, how many of you as parents, that quarrel, fight, or argument was one of your children sitting in the room? Put your hand up. Let me see. Anybody? Most of you. See? Oh, kids, see that? Isn't that wonderful? Your parents are honest. Isn't that amazing? Yes. And, and so we find ourselves in that, and I love it because James brings it right down to where we live, that sometimes that we have these things, these quarrels, these fights in our life, sometimes they're legitimate. It's not always wrong to fight, that sometimes we're the victim, or sometimes that, that legitimately there's harm that is done to us. But what James does here, he describes fighting and quarreling in a very different way. Because this is not something that takes place necessarily outside of us, but this is something that takes place very much inside of us. It's something that's birthed out of a disordered heart in our life. So here's a couple of thoughts this morning. The first is this, conflict is not external, but rather internal within our life. Because he says what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, is it not this, that your passions are at war with inside of you, within your own heart? Yes, it's not, that, it's not the things that are going on outside of you. It's not. The quarrel is not with your brother or your sister. And if you have a brother or if you have a sister, then you, have, you know what it means to fight. It's not, with if you're, it's not with your mother-in-law, okay? Understand that, right? Let's get real. It's not with your mother-in-law either that we're talking about either. But sometimes what, what, these, what, are, what he's saying is this. It's something that's within inside of our own heart, not circumstantial outside of our own lives, but in our own heart. And it's a spiritual reality of what he's talking about. So, let me, let me kind of work this out for us this morning. That there are a couple of ways we grow, and here's what James is kind of talking about today. There's a couple of ways that we grow in life, sometimes a combination of the two, but there's a couple of ways in that. One is this, by the grace of God, we're aware of the goodness of God in our life. That we spot these generosities of God within our life. Our health, you know, we have a little bit of money to go to lunch maybe after service this morning. A gratitude of God's graciousness, and gratitude always leads to gladness. And then gladness leads to more gratitude. And that gratitude leads to more uh, gladness in the Lord. And all of a sudden what it comes is it becomes a bonfire praise about that of the generosity of God. That we're not owed health. Did you know that? That you're not owed good health. You're not owed good health. You're not owed friends. You're not owed a good marriage or a stable family. That we're not owed. God doesn't owe us anything. Understand that. That we don't deserve anything that we have. I have to really get it down to, to the truth of the matter this morning. But all things that we have, it's a gift of a loving Father. Yes. And we see, when we see life through the lens of that gratitude, that it brings gladness. And then that gladness, it brings more gratitude. And that gratitude brings more gladness within our life as we spot the generosity of God within our life. It's a beautiful thing because what it does, it sets our eyes on the goodness of God and not the things that we're lacking because it's so easy to go through life and think, man, and this is a part of this quarrel within us sometimes that we look at other people and we say, boy, I would really like to have what they have. And so our lens of life is not that of the, gla- of, of the generosity of God, which leads to gladness, but it's the second thing, that we see all the blessings of our lives as something that we're entitled to. And we live in a culture of entitlement. Yes, that we're entitled to this, that we're not growing in gratitude that leads to gladness, but it's contempt. 
we, we, we become contemptuous. Contemptuous is a big word. It, it, it really boils down to maybe a dislike. Yes. So we look at people who have something and we want that and we don't have it. So we dislike them. And what we're saying is that I'm entitled to that. And so our contempt is toward that individual that I think I should have that. And they really shouldn't have that. That really should be mine. And so our contempt starts with others. And then it always leads to God. At some point, we blame God because God didn't give me this. He gave them that, but he didn't give me it. So we begin to become contemptuous toward God. And and we say, that is mine. And so what we do when we see other people who have something, it becomes offensive to us because we think that it should be ours because we're entitled to that. Yes. Now, let me tell you something. There's a little sidebar here, and this is this, that we say, I, I want what I deserve in life. Can I tell you, you do not want what you deserve in life. Can I tell you that? You do not. Because if, if we understand anything about the Bible, that what God saved us from by sending His Son, Jesus, to cover us in the righteousness of His Son, is that He saved us He saved us from that dread of His wrath, and He saved us from death. And so what, what we understand, spiritual death, so what we realize is that we don't want what we deserve in this life. We don't. No. I think the greatest blessing that we have in this life is the unfairness of God in really giving us what we deserve. No. And so that is not what we want. And we love the common graces that God has given us, and we all enjoy that, but we don't deserve any of it. But contempt starts toward others, and eventually it's directed toward God. It, it really is. And, and what I realize is, is over the years, as, as I pastored for a long time, especially in the South, in the middle of the Bible Belt, you come across people who've been raised in church. And it's a wonderful thing. All of our kids in here, it's a great thing to be raised in church. And I think that is very important. And, and I commend your parents for having you here week after week. And you go and you, you go to you Hope Kids and you hear the gospel preached to you in a way that you can understand. And that's a wonderful thing. But I think that what I find as, as you grow up, and I deal with some of you as adults, is this, that you buy into the whole church thing, absolutely, and, and you buy into what it means to be a Christian, so you make choices in your life, and you make choices like, here, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go to rated R movies, and I'm not going to do all those kinds of things, and I'm not going to listen to secular music, and I'm not going to... And you have all of these lists of things that you say that you're not going to do in life. But at some point, what happens in your life is God doesn't give you what you want. It's going to happen. At some point, God does not give you what you want. He doesn't give you the college of your choice or the relationship, the boyfriend or the girlfriend that you want. So what is your reaction many times, even though you've been raised in church and you've made all these decisions for God, that when God doesn't give you what you want, here's what you do. You forget. You say, God, forget you, and you bail on God. That's exactly what happens because many times we want God's stuff, but we really don't want Him. We really don't want him. I, I, I've thought about this a lot, that we can never place God in our debt because everything that we already have is through him. It's because of him. It's all his anyway. Understand that. We're not, we're not the sun that the world and the universe evolves around. Realize that. That's, we've talked about all, that already through the book of James, and that is great news for you and I. Because we said last week is this, it releases you and I to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. because it's not all about us. It's not. 
And then James says, hey, let's take this to another level. And he calls us adulterous people, not idolaters, but adulterous people. And here's what it means. It means that we are promise breakers. We're promise breakers. That's exactly what he's saying. That we go to God and we say, God, here's the deal. You know, we try to trick God. God, I will never do this again if you give me this, if you do this in my life. That's exactly what James is talking about. And so we break promises. Can I tell you, we all break promises at some point in life. It's going to happen. You're going to say something to someone, promise them that you can't follow through with because you don't have that ability, nor do you have the authority to follow through. So you're going to break a promise. And I'm not saying that you intentionally go out and do that all the time, but there are some times that we want to say things, we want to please people, make them happy. We make a promise, and we're not able to follow through with that kind of promise. But with God, we do those things like we're going to trick God And we say to God, God, if you'll just give me this, I want this, I deserve this, this is mine, I want it for myself, and if you're not going to do it, and if I have to wait too long, then I'm going to take things in my own hands, and I'm going to do them myself, and I'm going to make it work. And so what, what James says, we take our friendship with God, and we simply move it toward the world. We move it toward really the enemy of God. We say, God, if you're not going to do this for me, then I'm going to take my friendship and I'm going to move that to really your enemy. That's exactly what he's saying. Friendship is an interesting concept because when James talks about friendship, he's talking about it in the first century form here. It's it's that of investing your life. It's a very deep commitment to another person. Yeah. But when we talk about removing our friendship from God because we don't get what we want from God and God doesn't work how we want him to work and we move it toward the world, we always get this concept of defriending somebody, right? Isn't that right? Yes. That we're going to defriend God, you know? God, I'm going to remove you from my Facebook page. I'm going to defriend you, is what we think about. Yes. And for some reason, in our culture, we think because of the internet and because of all of those things in social media, we think that we really have a lot of friends because they're listed in a category somewhere on some social media pages, our friends. And so we think that just because we read a lot about them and we know a lot about them through social media, that they're actually our friends. Can I tell you, they're most likely not the kind of friend that James is talking about. And we have to frame friendship properly. We really do. Understand that. And most of the people that you think or you call them your friends because of social media, listen, what we're doing now on social media 10 years ago would be illegal and it would have been called stalking. Isn't that right? Yes. Yes. Oh, I know them real close. We're, we're, we're really good buds. Well, what, you haven't seen them in two years? Oh, but I know I've read their posts on, on Facebook this morning. You know, while I was out there having coffee or, or Instagram th- story or whatever. I, so I really know them. But do you really know them? See, James, what James is saying, James is talking about a relationship. When he talks about friendship with God and removing that and taking it to the world because we don't get what we think we deserve from God. He's talking about a deep, a deep investment of a relationship. If you look at Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus understood friends. He did. Because what you find is Jesus starts with three, 
And then at some point, he moves, he moves to more. He moves to seven, and then he moves to 12. And, and then, and then we, we sit around, he moves to 144. But yet, when you really look at the life of Jesus, you find that he, find, we, he associates with those three because you can't go deep with everyone. Understand that. And this is the deep kind of friendship that James is talking about that we have with God that we exchange for the world because we feel like we're entitled, so we grow in contempt toward God because God's not doing what we want. And when God doesn't do what we we want, we're going to defriend God. And I'm going to take my life and I'm going to move it over to those that are working against God, to, to those that may be enemies of God. And what we find here, James is talking about, is this a horrific assault on the mercy and the beauty of God. It's where we live. It's how we think. Let's read on James chapter five or James chapter four, verse five. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The jealousy of God, first of all, and then the greater volume of grace. But I want to talk about the jealousy of God first, because that's a very confusing concept for all of us, adults and kids alike. Because when we think of jealousy, we frame it in this this light of, of that of fear and insecurity, that we're jealous of what someone has, or, or we're afraid that they're going to take something that belongs to us. So our jealousy, our concept is based in that of fear and insecurity. That's not what he's talking about here. Here is the thing. God is not jealous about you. This is what I want you to understand, that God is not jealous about you, but God is jealous for you. And for his own glory, God is not jealous about you, but God is jealous for you and for his own glory. His, his jealousy is not built out of, oh, look what you have. I really would like what you have. No. Why? Because God owns everything. It all belongs to him anyway. So why would God ever be jealous of us in that manner? No. His jealousy is about, the scripture says, about the spirit that he has put in you. And then when we decide to defriend God because we don't get what we want from him and we move back over here to the world, God is jealous for that spirit that he has put inside of us for you and I to know him, to walk in the fullness of joy where God has designed you and I to be not always just happy, but fullness of joy. Those are the things that God is jealous for, for the very best of our life. It brings us back to this point that God is always for us and God is never against us. That God is jealous for that spirit that he's put in our lives. So I thought, how do you illustrate that to this room of such a vast age of people, this of, this of God being jealous for us. How, because jealousy is a word that we don't like to use because it has a very bad connotation in our culture. How do you do that? Well, I, 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 came, up with this, I came up with this idea. Can I be real honest with you? This idea kind of hit me early this morning. So um, Lydia is going to help me. Lydia, where are you? Come over here, Lydia. Lydia has agreed to give me a hand this morning. So uh, why, Lydia, can you give Lydia a hand to make her welcome this morning? Hi. How old are you, Lydia? You're nine. Okay, okay. You had to think about it for a moment, didn't you? That's a long time, isn't it? Have a seat right there. Can you get up there? Lydia's nine. What grade are you in, Lydia? Third. 
Third grade. Okay, good. Terrific. <clears throat> um, I, I, asked, I asked her parents earlier if, if I could use Lydia, and they said, yeah, but you know she's mean as a snake. That's what they said to me, you know? And, and I, I, I just don't see that, but I don't live in the house with her, so, you know, that's... A, and then I asked her sister, and her sister said, absolutely, she is, okay? What can I say? Quarrels and fighting. I'm sure that you never fight. Do your sister, you and your sister ever fight? You do? Okay, well, good. You're honest. Okay, good deal. All right. So I'm going to spin you around for a minute, because I'm going to use you as an illustration to talk about how God is jealous for us, okay? So I'm going to turn your back to everybody here for a moment, and you just sit right there. All right. So here's Lydia. Lydia is the damsel in distress. It's a great story. I don't know if you've ever read her book or not, but it's a great story. Yeah. She's a damsel in distress. She has been captured by this evil knight, placed in the tower, and she has been held there against her own will. She's not cared for. She's not clothed properly. She's not fed properly, nor, she, nor is she loved. And so she, she finds herself the captor of this evil knight. So what happens is this. The good knight, that of the, the, the knight in shining armor, he hears about Lydia being this beautiful damsel in distress, so he decides that he is going to rescue her. So what that knight does, he places his life in jeopardy, willing to lay his very life down for her life. And so what he does, he rescues and he redeems her. He brings her out of this terrible situation in this dark tower and brings her back to his castle. But he doesn't put her in a tower. Do you know what he does? Well, he cleans her up first. He puts on the most beautiful gown that is in the land. He puts a crown on her head and he sets her, he sets her by him on the throne. Yes. And so she has everything. He places this, all the love that he has in her. And um, you don't have a boyfriend, do you? Okay, good. Okay, that's okay. Then we can talk like this. Okay, that's good. Good. I didn't want to make him like jealous. You know that word? Okay. And so, and so he, he sets her up for the fullest life possible. But what does Lydia do? Because we already know Lydia because of what her parents have already said about her. We already know her, right? And so what does she do? She rejects the knight's love. She rejects the full life that he is going to give her. And so she decides to go back to the bondage and the tower that she was once rescued from with all of its enslavement and with all of its horrific living conditions. She leaves the castle to go back there. Here is how God is jealous for us. I'm going to turn you around. Okay. God is jealous for the spirit that he placed inside of us through his redemptive power to bring us to the fullest life possible in this broken world. But what we do in our choices so many times is we say to him, especially when we don't get what we want from God, I'm going to go back to where I was before. And God says, I'm jealous for the spirit that I placed in you, that I want you back. Now, God is not this whining, slobbering kind of individual who is, who is whining and waning for your attention, your love. So don't frame him that way. So be very careful in doing this. 
but he is jealous for that spirit and that relationship that he has placed in your life. So, what does God do to this princess who has turned her back on him as the knight that has redeemed her? What does he do? What does he do? What would you do? What would you do? I'd just leave her in the tower to rot, wouldn't you? Isn't that what you would do? Absolutely. If that's what she wants, let her go back. Big deal. I'm going to leave her there. What would you do? But look at this. can Can you walk away from that? No. Here's what God does. It's that sentence in that scripture that I just read that rings in my mind and my heart that I can't get out of my life. And it's simply that that he gives more grace. Isn't that amazing? That he gives more grace because he is jealous for us, not jealous about us, but he gives more grace. It's Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Lydia, you did an amazing job. You go, go back to your parents. Who... Love you greatly. Thank you. Can I read this verse to you? Because anytime I hear this uh, recited, but he gives more grace, it takes me to Romans 5 and 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What does that mean? And let me, we'll get as far as we can. And I know we got kids, so I I will be brief. But I have to kind of flesh this out for you this morning. That this text says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. That when the law shows up, what the law, <clears throat> what the law does is it reveals that you and I are in trouble. And so it always pushes us to God. We see the law is this thing that is to ruin our life, but it really pushes us to God, reveals that we're in trouble because it goes back to when Moses comes down from the mountain. We remember this from the book of Exodus and he sees the children of God. He has the Ten Commandments and he sees them. And what have they done? Well, they've thought that Moses has forgotten them and they think that God has forgotten them. So they make their own God. They go to Aaron and say, let's make a God that we can worship because God has forgotten us. Moses is on the mountain. He's not coming home. And so what do they do? They make a golden calf. That's exactly what they did. If I were them, I wouldn't have done a baby cow. I would have done a tiger, a cobra, something really cool. But no, they do a baby calf, and they worship that with all the gold they put together. Moses comes down. He says to Aaron, Aaron, you got to get rid of the calf. Aaron says, is this the way I kind of see it? Aaron says, you know what, Moses? It's so, un- it's so odd that you just show up right now because I was about to tell them they got to get rid of this thing, you know, but that's really not what happened, right? And, and so, the, and then what Moses does, he gives the law and he says that thou shalt not have any God before me for I, your God, am a jealous God, is exactly what it says. So put away the calf. And when you read the Ten Commandments, it starts out with that commandment first and that the trespasses begin to intensify they begin to intensify. It goes to lying and anger and to covet, to steal, to murder, and all it, the guilt increases. But here's what the rest of Romans 5 and 10 says. It says, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. Listen, there's no sin. There's no sin more powerful than the cross of Christ. Understand that. 
There's no sin more powerful than the cross of Christ. And I'm not sure how you drug yourself in here or what condition that you're in spiritually this morning. Maybe you're dismissing all of this and saying, you know what? You don't understand. You don't understand where I am as if your sin somehow causes God to blush because of the things that you have done in life. There is no sin greater than the cross of Christ. So regardless of how, regardless of how high the sin volume is in your life, Grace abounds all the more. Understand that. That is what James is saying. That's what Romans says to you and I, that it abounds all the more. It monumentally abounds. Listen, it's not that, it's not that grace barely wins the race here by a hair. It's not that at all. But what it says to you and I is this. The way I see it, grace crosses the finish line. Grace changes its clothes, takes a shower, cleans up, has a smoothie, and sets down for a little nap when sin crosses the line. Understand that. Grace always abounds greater and more than any sin in my life and your life. And because of that, we have a God who is jealous for us. Realize that he is jealous for us, the spirit that he has placed inside of us. And so when we don't get what we want, when we look at life, we say life is absolutely unfair. Look at what everybody else has. That contempt toward others always goes to contempt toward God because we know God is in control of all things. And so we say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to defriend God. I'm going to friend the world. And I'm going to go over here as if the world can fix what's broken in your life. And the whole time God is jealous for the spirit he's placed in you. He loves you because he's given you grace that covers everything thing in your life. And so nothing that you will ever do in life will be greater than the grace that God has expended toward you. Nothing. So I don't know where you are, how you showed up, what condition that you're in right now in your life, but grace abounds all the more in your life and in my life at this very moment. So where are you? Where are you? Can I, can I read three more verses and then we will pray? It says this in verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Boy, what some, what some words that he has given us. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here's the last thing I will say to you this morning, as far as our points go, that how are we to respond to God's greater volume of grace? How do we do that? Because we're defriending God. We're cuddling up with the world because God doesn't give us everything that we want. So how do we respond to God's greater grace in our life? And James says, you submit. You submit. Yes, you let go. You let go of those things that are causing anxiety and worry and fret and fear within your life and anxiety. You let all of those things go. But Mark, I don't know, because if I let those things go, I have this fear and this trepidation that what is God going to do in my life and what is God going to take away in my life? So maybe I should hang on to that in my life and that those things that cause fear and trepidation, the doubt, the worry, the fear, the things that you have, they become a false security for you this morning. They're, they're your pacifier, so to speak, is exactly what they are, that you find comfort around those things. And, and it's a false comfort and it's a false security. And so what James reminds us is that we rest in Christ this morning, that we rest in Christ. 
that He sits on the throne of our lives because we make really crummy kings. So He sits on the throne of our lives. And so we submit to Him our life and the things of our life. How do we do that? He says that you resist the devil. You can read, uh, you can read 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. You know, it's a powerful verse. It says, no temptation has overcome you. That is not common to man. But God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That resisting the devil means you stand and fight. You don't give up. You don't quit. That you stand and fight. You resist. And God makes a way when there seems to be no way in our lives. He makes a way. He says that we pursue God. That we, that we draw near to God and he draws near to us. And we do that through the Word of God, not just knowing Bible scriptures, but we know the God of the Bible. We know His character and His nature. That's what we teach all the time here at Hope. It is. That we do it by walking in community with one another. That we were not just called to Christ, but we are called to one another. That I think that sometimes the best work in our life is done in the furnace of community with one another. And community is extremely important. And the last thing is that we're serious about the sin of our lives. That we struggle with that. Because he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And what he's saying is this. It's not, just, it's not just the things that we do with our hands, but it's the intent and the desires of our heart and our mind that we fight the devil in the very battlefield of our own minds. And then he says those words, and I quit with this. He said, be wretched and mourn and weep. You think, Mark, that is a really great way to end a service. Is it not? Isn't that a great way to end a service? Yes. Because I think we're going to sing one of, the, one of all of you guys, Hope Kids' favorite songs at the end in a moment. But what a way to end it. Oh, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And, and, I, and I have to say this to you before you leave. That the drug of our culture, I think... And in our life, so many times is levity. And what levity means is that we want to keep it light and funny and airy. But there's times when we have to dig into the very dirt of our lives. And that's what James is about. It's the mirror that we look in. It's the mirror that we look in to see our lives. And we dig into the very dirt of our lives. We get down to where we live. We get down to the sin the disobedience, the times that we sell out from God for the world because God has not given us what we want. We get into the very dirt of our own lives. It's a story that I find in the New Testament. And you can play if you want because you're waiting on me, aren't you? Yeah, you might wait a long time if you wait on me. I'm just going to tell you that up front. The more you play, the less I talk, okay? (laughs) And you all know that's not true. There's a story in the book of John chapter 8. Jesus is standing in front of the temple. And all of a sudden this crowd begins to form. And in the midst of the crowd. There is this woman. We find this woman thrown to the ground. Maybe she's as tradition would tell us that she's barely clothed. And we find the Pharisees around her and they call Jesus over and they say, Rabbi, they call him teacher. And they say, Rabbi, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
Ah, it goes back to James, doesn't she breaks a promise. And she's laying there in the dirt of that street in front of the temple. And they say, Rabbi, the law says that because she was caught in this offense, that she should be put to death. What's interesting about this whole story, because Jesus sees it as a way to trick him, because it's not the sincerity of their heart, or they would have brought not only her, but the man with her also. But he's not mentioned. And so they say, we should stone her, and they begin to pick up rocks. And we know the story pretty well. Jesus kneels in the dirt and he begins to write something. And then he says something so profound. He says, those of you without sin, cast the first rock. Throw it at her. And John chapter 8, which I think is also interesting because I'm kind of geeky in this way, I guess is John chapter 8, and this story is never found in the original Greek text. It's not there. But I think it passed the test to be here. It's a powerful story. So it gives us a little latitude with it, maybe. And so they begin to drop the rocks one by one. The Scripture says they, they, they walk away from the oldest to the youngest. And so all of a sudden... We see this picture of possibly it's just Jesus and this woman. Maybe the disciples, we don't know. But it's just Jesus and this woman, and she's there in front of him. And he says, where are your accusers? And she looks around. In my eye, mind's eye, that I see her with her head dropped because of the shame, because there's no doubt of her guilt. That's not the discussion here. There's no doubt about she's found guilty of this sin. She's guilty, caught in the middle of it. She's, as we call it, navel-gazing. She's looking down. She's looking within herself. And she's not looking at Jesus. And in my imagination, that he would reach over to her and he would raise up her head and he would look her in the eye when he would speak speak these words to her. Where are your accusers? No one is here to condemn you, paraphrasing, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And in my imagination, I see tears and it's an ugly cry that's going on with her. Trust me, it's an, there's snot, tears, the whole deal. It's an ugly cry because of the shame. But Jesus would reach to her in my imagination, and put his hand under her chin and raise her head and look at her in the eye and say, where are your accusers? There are none here to condemn you and neither do I. Go and sin no more. Because I think in our life that it takes us getting down to the dirt of it all. It takes us getting down to the reality of where we are. To dealing with the truth that there are times when we say, God, because you don't do what I do and my life has not turned out the way I think it should, I'm going to take my friendship and I'm going to go over here. 
can we try to sit there and say it to ourselves, I've never done that and I've never do that. And in, in reality, when you get down to the dirt of your life, when you get to down to that place where she was, that brokenness, yeah, you have and some of you are right now doing that very thing. But in that moment, in that place, is where God does his most powerful work within our lives. Because he is jealous for us. So would you bow your heads for a moment? Maybe you are working very hard to dismiss the love of God for you right now. And maybe you are trying to convince yourself to no avail for the Holy Spirit is working more powerfully in your life right now. That you have done something or you have gone so far or you have disappointed God so greatly or you have done something so many times that there is no way that God could love you, forgive you, accept you, nor you could be His child. And what I love about that of sin abounding greatly is that God turns the volume of grace up so loud in our lives that it eradicates the sin of our lives. It drowns out the voice of the enemy, the thoughts that he would place in our lives. That his grace abounds greater. So for a moment, before we sing, if you would kind of take the, the facade in the front off and just lay it on the seat beside you. In fact, I would encourage you to get up and leave and leave it there this morning. And look at your life for what it really is. That he is the good father who loves you beyond words or description this morning. That he is absolutely jealous for the spirit that he has placed within you and the work that he has done within your life. And he responds to you turning your back to him. He responds to you defriending him by simply sending you more grace. And that is a God that you just can't shake off. So allow that grace to cover your life this morning. See him as the good father who loves you today intently. And submit to him, as James says. Give those things to him Surrender completely those things to him this morning. For he loves you. For he loves you. Amen. Father, thank you for your work in our hearts and our lives. Thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit that illuminates the word, makes it real for us today. So work in our hearts and work in our lives. 
as we surrender and submit completely to you today. In your name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Would you stand? During this song, I encourage you to reflect on the things that we have talked about this morning. Feel free to come up front and pray. Uh, Make sure that you grab a Thanksgiving bag before you exit this morning also. But I think that don't dismiss what we've said this morning. Like James says that we are sometimes hearers and not doers. Don't dismiss what we've talked about. But take it to heart. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you today.